Hey everybody, it's David Berkus. I am so excited. My new book, Under New Management, launches in just a few short months. If you want to get a special preview of the book and find out more about it, I've put together some awesome previews and pre-order bonuses for first movers. To get on that list, text first mover to 33444. That's first mover, all one word, to 33444, or go to com first mover. Now, on to this episode of the Leader Lab Podcast. This is Whitney Johnson, and you are listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? My name is Whitney Johnson, and I am the author of Disrupt Yourself, Putting the Power of Disruptive Innovation to Work. I am formerly the co-founder with Clayton Christensen of the Disruptive Innovation Fund, and prior to that, I was an equity analyst working on Wall Street. Let's be fair. Prior to that, you were a secretary working on Wall Street. Your your life story is the ultimate disrupt yourself story um, in, in that sense. You are, uh, especially for someone like myself who's gone through probably two career disrupt yourselves already and, you know, we'll probably have two or three more before he uh, kicks the can or bucket or whatever you At kick least. when you die. Um you're the person to go to to figure out how to do that. So, uh, I mean, I guess we'll talk about the framework of disrupting yourself and, and disruptive innovation a little bit. But why don't you just why don't we start with telling me why you and your life story, why you've become so good at this ideal of disrupt yourself? Absolutely. Well, I, um, as you just alluded, I, I graduated um, from college and moved to New York City with my husband. He was pursuing his PhD in microbiology. And as often happens, one spouse follows the other. And in my particular case, it was me following my husband. So I got to New York and I was terrified by New York. I didn't want to go anywhere by myself for the first week, but we had to put food on the table because his PhD, as you might very well know, David, was going to take five to seven years. So I started taking business courses at night. I had a boss who believed in me. I moved up from secretary to investment banker, eventually became an equity research analyst, and then co-founded an investment firm with Clayton Christensen. And what I've realized now, or you know, 10 years later, was that when I walked onto Wall Street through the secretarial side door, and then again when I walked off of Wall Street to become an entrepreneur, I was in fact a disruptor. Hmm. Can I can I ask you one interesting question? Um, and and then we'll this will tie into all the disruptive innovation stuff. I've just I always wonder this when you I love what you call the secretarial side door, but when you walked into that and it, like you said, it was the era of uh, wanting to work on Wall Street, et cetera. Was there uh, an inkling in your mind that this would be sort of this wouldn't be permanent? That this you'd do this for you know a, a decade, decade and a half, two decades, and then you'd disrupt yourself, or was it really just that sort of responding to the opportunity and and then making that pivot that was almost unforeseen? Does that does that even make sense as a question? Yeah, it absolutely does. It absolutely does. I think you know there's a, a sense that you know you could look back and say oh well Whitney you planned this all out and the fact is I didn't I mean I, I I look at my way of managing and navigating the world it's very much about what's the brass ring that's 10 or 15 feet in front of me and so for me there was there was this context where I had to earn money and when I had to earn money the most exciting brass ring at that time in New York was Wall Street, so I wanted to work on Wall Street. I think certainly in the back of my mind, I was going to eventually come home and just start having children and not work, um, given my background. Um, but once I got into this and was excited, I felt like I wanted to keep doing this. And so then I looked for the next brass ring, etc. 
See, I, I think that's really interesting because I and and maybe maybe long term listeners to the show catch this about kind of my own career. But when I when I was reading Disrupt Yourself and and um, really getting to know you, I think we probably didn't. We sort of circled around each other. We've been Facebook friends for like a year, but like real friends for like six months. And it makes me feel guilty we didn't do this before. Um, but I sort of, I, I resonate a lot with your story in the sense that I had this weird, like started out college as a writing major, got married to a doctor, very similar idea. Med school and residency determines what, you know, where you go. And we got lucky to kind of stay in the same city, but there was only so many career decisions you can, you can make with this idea that you're locked into a certain place for a set period of time. And so I grabbed onto the, the highest paying brass ring, which was in this case, not Wall Street, but around the time that I was there it was the pharmaceutical industry. And uh, I, I wa- like part of me looks back on my history and goes, yes, I thought I was going to be there forever. And another part of me goes, no, I always knew I was going to go back to the whole writer speaker thing because that was the plan a long, long time ago. So um, I, I, I ask you this almost out of pure self-interest on the grand plan or not, because I'm still trying to figure out if I had a grand plan or just went on a grand detour and I'm trying to like to, to justify it. If that, if that makes well, any sense, it's sort of you know, a weird it, element. It's, a, it's an interesting question, David. And the thought that, uh, sort of, you know, you're, you're a male and I'm a female. I know that's obvious, but I do think there is some gender that plays into all of this. One thing I would say though, is I think that we as individuals are very influenced by the lives our parents lead and led. Um, there's a wonderful quote from Carl Jung that says the greatest influence on a child is the unlived life of a parent. And um, I think that I look at my mother, in fact, who always worked, but I think wanted to write books and wanted to speak and kind of did, but didn't entirely. So I think in some ways there was a grand plan at work here, but in, in it, it, rather than me kind of circling back, it was in some ways living out the unlived life of my parent. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, a detour. <laughs> All right, that can that makes a lot of sense. So, um, no, I mean, no surprise in a sense that we look through your kind of um, career pivots and your career disruptions through the lens of disruptive innovation, because, like you said, you founded an investment firm with uh, with Clay Christensen. And one thing, by the way, that I forgot to brag on you for is you were you actually ended up as a ranked analyst for institutional investor for a time too. So in addition to climbing that ladder, like you were good. Like people who made lots of money trading stuff trusted you for advice, right? So yes. Yes. Um, I know. I don't know if you want to toot your own horn, but I'll I'll toot it for you. I think that's pretty awesome. Um, Thank you. Anyway, so starting starting this investment firm with Clay Christensen. Clay Christensen, of course, the um, originator of the sort of disruptive innovation theory. Whitney Johnson, of course, the originator of disruptive innovation in careers. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about the traditional theory of disruptive innovation, kind of where it comes from. I think a lot of people listening are familiar with it, but just in case, um, let's set that framework first, and then we'll talk about how it applies to careers, and I think then it'll become obvious to everyone listening how you and I are actually both awesome examples of this, which is why I was so excited to have you on the show. Sure. Okay, so a disruptive innovation is a low-end or new market innovation that um, eventually upends an industry. So like Amazon did to Barnes & Noble and Borders and Uber is doing to the yellow cab industry. And if you take this framework and you apply it to individuals, I started at the low end, I climbed to the top and now am and did upend my career. And so basically it's taking this framework of starting at the low end, climbing to the top and then upending yourself 
and applying it to an individual. And then my, my overarching premise is that companies don't disrupt, people do. So you can take these frameworks and apply them to yourself as an individual, but it's also a process that you can apply inside of an organization, a company, a nonprofit, et cetera, to drive innovation forward if you will allow your people internally to disrupt themselves. I think, too, one of the things I've always appreciated about disruptive innovation corporately, and maybe you could tell me, uh, I actually don't remember if this is in there or not, or if this is one of the things that came to me when I was reading it. Um, I have that problem of like being riddled with ADHD when I'm reading people's books that I come up with ideas, and now I don't remember which one's which. But one of the things I think is interesting, the, the reason that disruptive innovation um, works so well and the model of the S-curve works so well is that when you come in as a new entrant and a low entrant, you're almost not, you're not taken seriously for a time, or the niche that you're trying to carve isn't profitable enough, and so the established players kind of ignore you. And I love that when I look at it as disruptive innovation applied to careers too. In fact, you and I were chatting offline about a couple different things, um, getting kind of a little vulnerable from a, a bunch of different perspectives. And, and it's that idea of framing where you enter almost as an asset because maybe people aren't taking you seriously enough. And as you're moving through your career, you can kind of surprise them with how good you are, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's the classic, you know, under promise and over deliver. When you start your career as a secretary, um, no one's going to take you seriously. So you're in this really great position to continually over deliver. And, um, and I think that it applies, we know it applies with companies, but I think it also applies with individuals. Now, the, the caveat here is that you have to be in a position where you can intersect, you, you know, your, the slope of your curve is steep, or the slope of your line or trajectory is steep enough that you can eventually intersect with where you want to go. If I'd started as a secretary working in Nebraska where Wall Street doesn't exist, I could probably never have intersected with my what turned out to be my objective of being a, an award-winning equity analyst, but because I started in New York, I could. I wonder, though, how much of that is a function of technology, right? Because I'm, I'm thinking, okay, so I'm, I'm going to get a little vulnerable here. My apologies. We should have talked about this offline. But I think about my own um, career. Like I, for a lot of reasons, chose to teach at a, at, a, at a school that is not really even in the top 100 universities in America. And I, I live in a city that makes the top 50 cities in America possible. And yet, because of the sort of connective power and the ability to kind of build and benefit from the same network connections that almost that used to have to be geography based, there's now an opportunity. I mean, it, don't get me wrong; it took a lot of work, arguably way more work than if I had put myself in that position. But I feel like one of the exciting things about reading disrupt yourself in 2015 is that even if you are in Lincoln, Nebraska, as a secretary, like there is still more that is possible that most people don't realize is possible. Does that make sense? Yeah. David, you make a great point. You're absolutely right, and that had not occurred to me. I think that you know, in 1989, 1990, it wasn't possible, but in 2015, it is. And I think that's one of the wonderful democratizing powers of technology is that all sorts of things are possible to, to people in far-flung places that certainly simply were not possible 25 years ago. So, yeah. point. I think so. Let's so let's assume there is somebody in. I don't know why we're picking on Nebraska, but let's assume there is somebody listening in Nebraska with big aspirations like that, ready to disrupt themselves. There's there's some terminology they're gonna have to get familiar with, and a framework for doing this that they're gonna have to get familiar with. Um, that really is the core of disrupt yourself. Let's let's talk a bit about the the S curve first and how that kind of applies to this. You you hinted at it already a little bit, um, and then we'll talk about the other elements of what we need to do to disrupt ourselves. All right, so the S-curve, it's in the shape of an S. It was um, developed by E.M. Rogers in 1962. 
And he developed this curve to help explain how ideas um, are spread or technologies are adopted. And what he um, proposed was that at the low end of the S, um, growth will be very, very slow. So you can put in a lot of work and it doesn't look like much is happening, although there's momentum building up. And then around 10% penetration of a market opportunity, you hit this tipping point and you move into hyper growth. And so that's the sleek, steep back of the curve where you're not having to work as hard and yet you're seeing a lot of results. And then at the top of the curve, the top of that S, picture that in your mind, it kind of levels off and that's saturation and things um, you know and, and growth starts to taper off the thing that's important for me is I I think the s-curve helps us also understand the psychology of disruption so at the low end you're working really hard looks like not much is happening that helps you avoid discouragement and that steep part of the curve it's exciting your synapses are firing that's the sweet spot and at the high end um, you it's pretty easy but it's so easy that you're not generating these feel-good effects, these neurotransmitters, and so boredom can kick in, at which point if you don't jump to a new curve, your plateau can become a precipice. And so it's that S-curve that I want you to visualize in your mind, and once you get to the top of that curve, it's, it's important to jump to a new curve, um, whether it's your, your company um, or you as an individual. Now, there's a, there's a whole chapter in the book to me about how scary that jump can kind of be where you talk about the need to sometimes step back or step to the side or, or move in directions that don't look like that normal career trajectory in order to be able to do this. I think so often we're trained to sort of climb that corporate ladder, but the S-curve implies that like there's not one ladder. There's like it's like, a, it's like an Escher painting of ladders and you've got to jump to the side or backwards or forwards or, or somewhere to get to that uh, new S-curve to ride that up, which can be a really scary moment for a lot of people. Absolutely. It's that moment of free fall where you, you're, there's, there's space there when you're jumping from one curve to the next. To the next. And I think there, there's a couple things that have to happen there. Is Number one is um, when you do finally jump to be, well, actually, let me back up. I think that oftentimes people don't jump, um, and there are a couple of reasons why, and almost always they're either comfortable or they're fearful. And so one of the things you have to think about is if you're promotion-focused, according to Heidi Grant Halverson, you say, well, if I stay here, what wonderful things will I not be able to achieve if I do? And if you're prevention-focused, you say to yourself, there really is no such thing as standing still, um, and so I probably better you know, beware the undertow of the status quo. So that's the first thing is to sort of say to yourself there is no such thing as standing still from there because you know there's this moment of free fall your why becomes very important your dreams become very important because the dreams effectively pack that parachute and allow you to jump from one curve to the next they allow you to say okay I'm hungering for a better life I'm going to become a problem solver I know that this is the engine of disruption and I also know from the theory of disruption that the odds of success are six times higher and the revenue opportunity 20 times greater when I pursue a disruptive course. And so you pack this parachute of dreams and of data and and you are able to, to muster the courage to make that leap. Hmm. So I think there, that's there's one scary moment there. I think, too, at the beginning of the S-curve is, to me, the other scary moment when I think about it. Because really, if you're, if you're visualizing your career as that sort of S, you're staring up at, at a lot of work. And, you know, it, it's, it's really comfortable to be comfortable. Does that make any sense? It's the same reason people don't make the leap, I think, might be the reason people don't lean into the top the, or lean into the trough and kind of go through what they need to do to get on the upward trajectory. 
Yeah, so I would say, I mean, to your point about the low end of the curve, I think that is scary, but it's 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 scary actually in, in, in the same ways, whereas you're there and you don't know what to do with yourself because you're not yet sure that you're even on the right curve. Right, totally, and, yeah. And so there's this question of, okay, well, you start your, your immediate response is, I'm going to go do something that's going to make me feel more certain and less scared. And, and that's sort of your first mistake because when in a career, um, for example, if you go after a job that 50 other people are applying for, that makes you feel safe because you know there's a job there. But the fact is, is that you're much better off taking an opportunity where you're not sure that there's a job and you create that job for yourself, it feels less certain and it feels more scary. But the fact is, is that the odds that you're going to be successful in getting a job that you created because you're the only job applicant are much higher than going after the certainty of a job where there's 50 others, you know, 50 other people applying. So one of the best things you can do at that very, very low end of the curve is to be willing to take on market versus competitive risk and even though it feels more scary knowing again that the theory tells you it in fact is less risky yeah and um i mean i, lo I love what you said there because my mind went right back to like strategic management class with the differences between those two um risks but then also this idea that um and i I stole this from somebody, but I'm not sure who, but I counsel when I talk to the sort of traditional college students looking for, looking at where to apply, what to do with their career, et cetera, I, I remind them something that's true about, really it's true no matter what phase of the curve that you're on, but it's especially true when you're the, in the beginning that like there is no job application out there called like dream job at dream company you know it doesn't it doesn't exist you can't just apply for your dream job and then it, even if it did exist like you said there'd be 50 to 100 people for every if more there'd be 2,000 people for every opening right and so the people who I've met yourself included the people who can say like I am doing my dream job usually they didn't apply for it they built it right so they entered in somewhere and then they gradually either stopped doing stuff that didn't engage them or started taking on tasks that were difficult but let them refine skills and gradually they built their way to that perfect dream job right they created it they created it um I like that there is no dream job at dreamcompany.com. <laughs> right. You, you can't. There's no monster.com listing for dream job, right? You've just got to gotta build it. And, and that's one of the reasons I loved uh, Disrupt Yourself, putting the power of disruptive innovation work, not only because I'm a disruptive innovation nerd, um, but because it really provided that framework for here's how to build when you have no idea what the dream job is going to look like, right? And you've got this stuff to go through. Here's how to engage and how to use disruptive innovation to sort of shape that path it's uh to me it's a whole lot more useful than like what color is your parachute and resumes that knock them dead like this is a far more useful career uh book if you're looking for that sort of dream job um i wonder if we could shift a bit um uh, to you and instead of the book ask you the questions we ask all our guests i'm actually going to ask you three ready so we have the, the oh, two but I, i'm interested in three is your I get a bonus question well, it's just a little one is your husband still a microbiologist Yes, he is. So he hasn't disrupted himself, just, just you. Well, oh, no, there's a fantastic story there um, in that he is a microbiologist. He was an assistant professor at UMass Medical School. He disrupted himself to become a stay-at-home dad for 10 years. And, um, and I was the primary, primary breadwinner. And now our oldest son just went off on a mission. Our daughter is a freshman in high school. And my husband just on-ramped 
back into a tenure-track position at a small liberal arts college here in Virginia, and thus I disrupted myself and moved to Virginia with him and our children. Huh. Oh, very cool. I like that. So so you're, you're, you're playing out your S-curves even familial-wise so that they don't sort of overlap each other and create all sorts of tension. You're just, I like that, especially as somebody married to an ER doctor with the, the career that I have. I like that. That makes a lot of sense for me. Cool. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad I asked that. See, I was just going to ask our normal standard questions, but I'm glad I asked that. <laughs> okay. So moving on to our standard questions, what are you reading right now? All right. Well, besides my um, my John Grisham books that I love reading when I'm on planes, um, I actually just finished The Year of Yes by Shonda Rhimes, and it's um, and I don't know if you know who she is, but she produced uh, you know Grey's Anatomy and Scandal and and a number of different television shows. And it's it's a fantastic. I mean, you know, she writes for a living, but it's a it's a fantastic little well written gem of a book. Oh, very cool, very cool. So I'm sorry, the year of yes, right? Yeah, year of yes. Perfect, awesome. I'm gonna I'm gonna put that on the on the wish list. It's the holiday season. I'm gonna put it on the wish list. Um, okay, second second question, and this is incredibly appropriate to ask you, the author of Disrupt Yourself. What's next for you? Is there the beginning of an S-curve that you're jumping? Is there an S-curve you're jumping off of or the beginning of one that you've just begun? Yeah. So, I mean, right now I'm in this sweet spot. Um, You know, I just launched my book, Disrupt Yourself, a month ago. So I'm in that sweet spot of the curve where I feel competent and confident and all my synapses are firing and it's thrilling and exciting and wonderful. Um, But to answer your question, uh, I think that within three or four months, I'll need to start thinking about my next book. And one of the things that I'm really focused on right now, which is it seems like it should be an easy thing for me to do, but it's not necessarily, and that is how do I help or or persuade corporations and organizations that these ideas aren't just for the individuals that they're trying to get leave to leave the company, but to actually have these frameworks and these processes be something that's integral to their organization and in making them more competitive. And that's a curve that I'm trying to jump to and I've started to do that, but I'm trying to figure out how to do more of that. And um, it's it requires some skills that I don't quite yet have. So it's a good curve. It's a scary curve, but it's a good one for me to be jumping to. You know, I think that's a huge unmet need in the industry as a whole. Like I've, I've always felt this with stuff like StrengthsFinder and any really any career-oriented talk is I don't think organizations are willing to engage in it at the depth that they need to because what happens if somebody starts down the journey and finds out that they want to leave, right? And the reason for that isn't that the organization is bad. It's that the structure doesn't allow for that. So really thinking about how we design our organization in such a way that people can engage in S-curves while staying with us and being able to sort of continue to leverage their human capital, that makes the investment sort of worthwhile. There's a huge organizational design and organizational structure problem. There. Not not to tell you how big of an issue it is, but I see it as a huge unmet need. And so I, I applaud you for undertaking it. I, I hope that you can start getting from the trough to where everything is firing um, on the slope very quickly, because I see that as a, as a huge need that needs to be met for sure. Thank you. I, I, I hope it's nice to hear that you you agree that it's that's something that needs to happen. That's great to hear. Totally. No, I'm I'm, I'm looking I'm, and I'm looking forward to you doing it so that I don't have to, which is even more exciting <laughs> to me. Uh, in in the meantime, the the new book, Disrupt Yourself: Putting the Power of Disruptive Innovation to Work. Whitney Johnson, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. Thank you.